everybody. Welcome to the Crohn's Fitness Food Podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Gish, Crohn's warrior and IJ nephropathy warrior, and I'm dedicated to sharing the stories of those with IBD. Thank you so much for joining me today. Now let's get to it. Well, hi, everyone. My guest today is Tina Aswani Omprakash of Own Your Crohn's. When Crohn's disease derailed her career and educational goals 17 years ago, she rose from the ashes and graduated this summer from the Mount Sinai Icon School of Medicine's Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences and gave the commencement address. She's undergone more than 20 surgeries, had four near-death experiences, and today is passionate about advocating for the chronically ill and disabled. Thank you so much for joining me today, Tina, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for having me here today. Um, It's an honor to be on your podcast, and thank you for the good work that you do for the community. Thank you. It's an honor to have you, and thank you for all you do, and we're going to get into that today. You are truly an inspiration of what one can achieve despite chronic illness. In addition to recently earning your Master's of Public Health degree, you've authored multiple research papers and co-founded a nonprofit, the South Asian IBD Alliance. So let's go ahead. Let's go back to the beginning of your story, and can you share when and how you were first diagnosed? Sure, sure. Um, so Stephanie, uh, my diagnosis was kind of, I feel like it was coming for a long time. Um, uh, you know, I don't know that I knew that um, extra intestinal manifestations existed when I was a child. So all that joint pain, all those, all those instances where I had red eyes, they were unfortunately like misdiagnosed uh, as just, oh, growing pains for the joint pains. That's why her ankles and her wrists are hurting. And um, I remember even all the the eye stuff, they were like, oh, she just keeps having pink eye. Um, and my sister would have it too. So they were like, you know, oh, they're both just get going through pink eye. My mom's like, how many times are they going to have pink eye? Both of us have Crohn's. So um, it is clearly something that runs in the family. I think looking back, I'm like, oh boy, um, those were probably related to a Crohn's diagnosis when we were kids. Um, I didn't actually get diagnosed until I was 22. And that was because I finally got insurance after I um, graduated college. Um, This was pre-ACA. So before, you know, you'd be covered by your parents uh, until age 26. So it was um, really challenging. Um, My father also died from Crohn's disease that turned into colorectal cancer. So we um, kind of grew up on poverty line and didn't have access to health insurance. So the moment I got health insurance, I was like, you know, I probably should get checked out for this. And that's how I was diagnosed. But at the same time, this is also a tricky part of my story is um, they didn't tell me I actually had IBD on the colonoscopy initially. Um, six months later, I flared up. And when I ordered the medical records, it said ulcerative colitis on there. And they never told me. Why didn't they tell you? Do you have any idea? Did they tell you anything? Or did you? they just, because I mean, you're kind of, you're drugged up when you wake up from the colonoscopy. But did they not say anything to you or whoever went with you? So... This is a very interesting part of my story is, first of all, I was not fully drugged up. So I woke up in the middle of the procedure and I (laughs) felt parts of it. And they were like, oh, everything looks fine. Everything looks fine. And honestly, it was so hard for me to get the colonoscopy in the first place because my primary care physician who, who was South Asian too was like, South Asians don't get IBD. Why are you asking about this? 
And I was like, well, my father had it. And that's the only reason why I got the referral. What I learned later on is even if you had mild IBD back then, this was 17 years ago, um, you know, they didn't really care to put you on uh, medication at that time to address this right away. It was like this um, top up, like this, if you look at a pyramid, like sort of this top up structure, uh, oh, you know, if it's very, very mild, it's okay, you know, but otherwise they'll start you on mesalamine and then work your way up to biologics and surgery. But like, clearly, they didn't think it was a big deal. When I asked him um, five, six months later, when I flared up, you know, how come you didn't tell me this? I'm seeing this on medical records. And he's like, it was just so incredibly mild that we didn't think it was a big deal. And I was like, and he's like, you know, it could have been infectious. It could have been anything. I'm like, you know, we could have started me on meds then. And maybe I wouldn't have flared up six months later. So it's, um, it's interesting. You know, I, I think just going through that, it's very interesting to see how far we've come and how much medicine um, and the algorithms around treating IBD have changed in recent mm-hmm. years. Gosh, what a, it, I'm just, <laughs> I'm at a loss for words because I can't believe that it was so hard for you to get into the hospital, so hard to get the colonoscopy, and then they see it and they don't say anything. So yep. w- what happens then six months later? you flare up. Is this one of the worst flares you've had? Or have you been, since you were dealing with it for so many years before you actually got the diagnosis, how bad were the flares? When did you actually start treatment? When did the healing begin? Because I know you you have a, a big story ahead we're about to jump into. <laughs> Unfortunately. Um, yeah, no, that's a great question, Stephanie. So Um, so at that point they started treatment, but because he didn't really tell me six months prior, I, I think that just created a mistrust right from the beginning. I was like, I need to have a relationship, um, that is more trustful with the physician. Um, you know, I was very young. I didn't know what I was doing and I certainly didn't know enough about IBD, um, to feel like I could even advocate for myself. So this was really challenging. And I think because I was 22 at the time, and just starting my career out, I was in a state of denial about taking medication and what a chronic illness really meant, what chronicity of an illness yeah. really is, like how heavy and deep that is. Um, so he started me on a, a, a 5-ASA on Pentassa, and I was actually allergic. I developed hives. So even more like, okay, I don't trust you type of feeling. Um, and he started me on all sorts of medicine for GERD. Um, so like protonics and stuff. And then I think, uh, he wanted to start me on, um, prednisone and I didn't feel comfortable with that. My father had been on prednisone for 15 years before he developed, um, colorectal cancer. There were no good options back then in terms of treatment. This was pre-Remicade era. Um, so I was terrified of being on steroids and I thought I would be left on steroids like he was. So I was like, all right, I got to seek out other care. <sighs> Believe it or not, like my mom took me to Johns Hopkins. Um, we went to other doctors in New Jersey and Staten Island. I think in that sort of roaming around shopping for doctors process, I realized, oh, my God, there is such a difference between a local community doctor and potentially a university center. It was yeah. such a difference. Um 
I ended up landing at NYU for my care, um, which, uh, which worked out at the time. He was still a private practice physician. So um, as I got more complex, I did have to switch my care into Cornell, into the actual university center rather than into a private practice physician because I, I became complex really fast, as you accurately said. So I started this medication um, and, uh, you know, the, the doctor that I saw at NYU, he was actually very, very good in the sense that he's like, I am not seeing any Crohn's. I understand that's what your dad had. Right now, it seems confined to your colon. There's no skip lesions. There's no granulomas. The pathology is reading ulcerative colitis. I said, okay, fine. Um, we continued with like colazal, which is valsalazide, another 5-ASA. We um, did canassa suppositories. We did if I would flare up, which I had many, many flare ups over a period of two years after that. Um, mostly, I would say confined to the rectum. I had like rectosigmoiditis, so uh, in the rectum and in the sigmoid. So I was using a lot of enemas and suppositories, which was very tough when you're young and when you're trying to date um, <laughs> and just trying like you're like, oh, my God, what do I have to do to myself every night and, you know, in the middle of the day or whatever um, and trying to keep the enemas and suppositories in is no joke, too. So that was really the beginning of my journey, I would say. But there was a lot of denial and grief, I think, coupled in this and also like, OK, like a repeat of what my father went through when I was a child. So those memories of that and then this de deep denial where I was like, well, I can still live my life and party and go out with my friends and work 15 hour days on Wall Street without making any concessions to my lifestyle. And as we know, IBD does not work like that. <laughs> it does not. <laughs> that is the worst combination. <laughs> it really is. So I learned that really fast in the first two years of my diagnosis, unfortunately. And it's, it's a wake-up call, Stephanie. It's also a process that makes you grow up a lot faster than you might want to. So what happened at that point? You have the diagnosis. You're still trying to live a young 20 you know, your young 20s, still trying to live that life. What was the next step in your journey and how did it escalate? Because I know, you know, from reading your, your blog, you state it as this laundry list of things that you have experienced over the years. So how did things escalate and what did that, did the care get better? I'm hoping at some point. It did. I think once I um, shopped around for physicians and found somebody who I could trust um, and who really seemed to know what he was doing when it came to IBD, um, I felt better about my care. Um, that said, my disease advanced. Um, I would say it was okay. There were times when I was going into remission, but then times when I was flaring badly and bleeding a lot. Um, but I also noticed that, you know, um, when I went to Mexico and this was for my 24th birthday and I had gone with, I was dating my husband at the time, um, for the past few months. And he took me to, um, Cancun for my 24th birthday. And I, I got Montezuma's revenge over there. So I got, you know, really bad stomach fire. So did he, he just threw it all up the same night and he was fine the next day. <laughs> But me? Oh, no, 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 no. This was like a saga that followed after. Um, so I got really sick in October 2007. 
um, you know, around my 24th birthday and came back, was put on a course of Levaquin, if I remember correctly, and that set off a course of C. diff. Um, Now, for those of you listening, C. diff is um, an infection that uh, what it does is if you take in too many antibiotics or even just a course of antibiotics and have like a gut microbiome that's been compromised by a disease like IBD, you're more susceptible to this infection because um, it kills off the, the antibiotics, kill off the bacteria, the good bacteria in your intestines. Um, and what that does is it can create these spores um, that cause an infection called C. difficile. Um, and this causes pretty um, painful uh, like diarrhea. It's like water and it smells really weird, like not like typical IBD, but it's just like you're going 30, 40 times a day and it's like really like water. Um, and so sorry for the TMI. <laughs> <laughs> this is a podcast about inflammatory bowel disease. So <laughs> yeah, I don't so, know if there is a TMI yeah, I here. <laughs> I don't think there is TMI, but C. diff is like a whole other animal. Um, and I had no idea what this was. And I was just like, oh my God, I go to Mexico to have like fun for once. And, you know, um, here we are, uh, me sick again. Um, so I come back with this nasty infection. C. diff starts um, coupled with a flare-up of my IBD. So I, I automatically just think it's a flare. Um, my doctor hospitalizes me at NYU. And this is now January 2008 because I can't even go to work. So I closed out the new year. I mean, closed out the year 2007 bleeding so much, um, pushing myself to go to work, um, and then opening 2008, calling out sick, like, there's no way I can go in, because I was commuting two and a half hours each way to work. Um, From my mom's house to Wall Street, it was really a lot. And um, I ended up calling out, and I remember I just could not muster up the energy to um, go into work after that. And there was no work from home back then, you know, that, that didn't exist. Um, so, so at this point I was like, all right, I think I need to get into the hospital. I had started to lose a lot of weight. Um, they treated me for C. diff, but my, um, IBD, uh, rapidly, uh, you know, went south. Uh, I would say they wanted to escalate me from being on valsalazide, the colazal, um, straight to Remicade. And I was like, wait, what? I, all I know is there's this top-up structure that you're supposed to follow. That's all I knew. That's what my doctor had explained to me. And I'm like, wait, what happened? Um, you want me to skip over prednisone? You want me to skip over um, uh, 6-MP and Imuran? Uh, you know, wait, what? And I remember in February, he was talking to my mom and um, Anand, who's now my husband, and telling them she really needs to do this. And my mom was like, oh, no, this is going to give her lymphoma. This is going to do this. This is going to do that. And my family was so scared. And like, you know, in Indian culture, like, you know, and I don't want to speak for all of Indian culture, but, you know, I've heard this a lot of times from my community um, and even just my own experiences. A lot of times we want to go the natural route. Like, so you know, we're encouraged to do like Ayurveda or homeopathy, naturopathy, Chinese medicine even. Um, But, you know, none of that worked for me. And I, in fact, worsened. And my doctor was warning me. He's like, no, Tina, like, this is not going to work there. It got to a point where 
I remember him telling my mom she needed to leave the room because she was preventing my care. It had gotten that bad. And this is why I advocate so hard today, because we need to have culturally um, competent, culturally safe conversations, because there's a lot of mistrust in my community towards Western medicine, a lot. And, um, you know, a lot of times because this involves the digestive tract, the intestines, you know, we want to say that diet and lifestyle cures it, which it does not cure IBD. Um, uh, you know, and what we don't understand is that delaying our care can actually be detrimental to our health and lead to complications of disease or surgery. Um, and that's exactly what happened to me. And I don't think he explained that. Um, I, I, even though he was a, do a doctor of color, um, it was not explained um, to me or my family that delaying my care could worsen my outcomes. It was not explained to us um, that the cost of foregoing therapy um, could be far worse than any side effects, if any side effects even reared their ugly head. None of that was ever explained to me. And I think, you know, I was just talking to my PCP this morning She because about this. And she's like, you know, I just sent a patient in for liver failure for being on all these supplements, turmeric. Turmeric is like an ancient healing, you know, uh, herb, uh, you know, that we use in, in South Asian culture all the time. And granted, in smaller quantities, it's very good for you. Um, and there are dosing guidelines from what I understand for ulcerative colitis um, that they've come up with, um, with turmeric. But you got to be careful because if you take too many supplements, that can lead you into liver failure too. Nothing comes without side effects. So if this conversation was had in a culturally appropriate and safe way, I don't think I would have gone down the road that I did um, and, or heard as much pushback from my family. So something I talk about a lot is that, you know, in, in a lot of communities of color, our families are involved in our care. At 24, I could not go against my mom. Yes, I'm an adult in, in the United States and technically speaking, but culturally speaking, when you're going through something as big of a disease as IBD is, your family's involved and you listen to your family and your family needs to trust your doctor too. What finally got your family on board with Western medicine care and, and medications? Are we jumping ahead? Uh, yes and no. Uh, it was really bad. I, I had to get to a point from uh, that January where I was hospitalized with C. diff to hospitalized again in May. Um, so four months where I lost, I went from 135 pounds to 85 pounds. So 50 pounds I lost in like four or five months. Um, and uh, my family was still not agreeing. And it wasn't just my mom. It was my grandparents, my aunts and uncles. They were like, the medication killed your father. You know, they thought the prednisone killed him. Mind you, medications has changed. It's evolved. No, no, it's the medication that killed him. I'm like, the disease killed him. But I didn't know any better back then. And quite frankly, when you're too sick, you're too sick to fight. Um, so I... Um, in May, I was hospitalized. My doctor said, Tina, look, I have to start you on Remicade at this time. As it is, you know, like, he's like, 
I had an accident in his office. And he's like, you should not be having an accident on the floor. Um, you know, I was wearing a gown and I had an accident. It was so embarrassing. He's like, is this what you want your life to be? Um, he had me hospitalized. He started the Remicade. My mom was not for it. My family was not for it. It worked for a week. Um, and then it stopped working. So it was like a miracle. Like I had formed stools for like a week and then psh, blood again. Um, so, you know, I still look back at May, 2008 as, oh my God, had I started this four or five months earlier, would it have worked and, you know, struck down the disease given what we know now? Anyway, it is what it is. Life goes on. Um, but I landed in surgery and again, there were a lot of issues here. The surgery was not explained in a way that would be appealing. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, it was explained to me that I would need an ostomy um, temporarily and then would be reversed to a J pouch. I was like, just do it tomorrow. I'm dying. Like, I can't do this anymore. My family was like, your father had an ostomy and he hated it. I was like, but that was like, I, at that point, that was like 16 years prior. Ostomies have changed in those 16 years. It's now been like 32 years, 31 years. Ostomies have evolved so much since then. And so I was just like, no, I can't live like this anymore. It was this whole back and forth with my family um, for two months. And on the 4th of July, I finally decided to go against my family. It was actually the 3rd of July. And I remember my, my friend and um, my husband, he was my boyfriend at the time, came. Um, they left work early um, to come to my mom's house from the city um, and picked me up and took me to uh, the hospital. They took my car into the city and took me right into the hospital and said, I was like, I, I can't do this anymore. I'm, I'm going to die. Um, literally like I was being fed by a pick line with, uh, getting the TPN to total parenteral nutrition. I, you know, I was getting gray hair on my head from malnutrition. Like it was just, it was so bad. Um, and the, the surgeon said at the time, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to, um, save you. He's like, you're really sick and really malnourished. Now what we know is malnutrition worsens any, like, any sort of um, outcomes of surgery. So if you go in too late, it's it's a very hard thing to recover from because you don't have the stores, you don't have the albumin, you don't have all of the stores to recover from that surgery. So he was like, I'm going to try my best. It was a really rough recovery. My mom and my family finally came around when they saw that I didn't hate my ostomy the way my dad did and that it actually saved my life and that I started gaining weight. It took me two weeks after surgery to even eat a morsel of food because I hadn't eaten in months. Um, but just think about it's such a dramatic story and didn't need to be dramatic is what I'm trying to say is if there was proper education, this is why I'm so um, fervent about patient education now is if I had known more about medications to advocate for myself, if my family had understood the medications if we both understood surgery better, did I need, really need to go down this entire path of, you know, struggling head on with what was being recommended by my physicians? Probably not. And I think education is what ultimately breaks down stigma. 
Um, and what I was a victim of, unfortunately, and what my family was a victim of is cultural stigma. This disease is so stigmatized that we don't really talk about it. Um, it, they, it, it it's stigmatized in every culture and community. But then there's other communities where it's affecting your family's reputation, like mine, or it's affecting your marriage ability, like mine. Um, it's affecting your ability to get a job or be looked at as a, like a as like a you know a capable human being in society. It's it's affecting every aspect of your being um, in my community, and I think that adds to the struggles. And then the ostomy did too. So um, I got my first ostomy, um, Stephanie, in 2008. It was reversed in 2009 in like seven or eight months. Um, I actually did not want to go through with a reversal. Um, I had C. diff after. Um, so I had one surgery and then a second surgery to clear out complications after my colon was removed. Um, then they wanted to sort of do the second step of the J pouch surgery. So the third surgery and then a fourth surgery to, to reverse. Um, this was all done over a period of seven and a half, eight months. Um, and yes, I started to gain weight, but I had an episode of C. diff again, um, that really took me out. I had finally started to feel like I was getting back on my feet a little bit again. And the doctor was like, Oh, let's reverse you now. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm ready for this. Um, I went through a period of real grief. Um, <laughs> you know, it's so funny. I actually enjoyed like, this sounds crazy, but, um, I actually enjoyed like taking care of my stoma. Like it was like my baby. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, it, maybe in a strange way, it gave you some sort of control where it was exactly. something you could do and you could do it well. And it was something that that no one had to tell you you couldn't do because you needed exactly. to. <laughs> That's exactly what happened is I got attached to my stomach <laughs> and my husband named it snuffle up, I guess, because it was like, <laughs> and um, I, I actually was like, okay, this thing saved my life and I kind of don't mind it. I kind of like taking care of this thing. And February 2009 rolls around and they're like, we're reversing you. And I'm like, oh no. I went I, I went through like a whole like series of sessions on grief with my therapist at the time, like over this. And I actually don't think I wanted to reverse Stephanie. That was the other thing. And that was the other thing that I heard from my surgeon who was Asian at the time. And of course, from my mom and family is who's going to accept you with a stoma? Um, you know, my surgeon didn't say it like that, but he very much got it when my mom said it <laughs> um, because it's, he, he's, he's Korean. Um, but I, from what I could tell is we have similar, um, stigmas around, um, the ostomy and just in speaking to other, um, people of the Far East Asian background or even Middle Eastern background, we have similar concerns around marriageability and just family reputation. So he's like, don't worry, you're 24 years old. Um, we can, we can reverse this. So at 25, I had it reversed. Um, and, uh, you know, I started living my life again. I went back to Wall Street, started working. But even before the takedown surgery, I had pouchitis in the J pouch. So I started to become concerned about, is this even going to work out? And he was like, don't worry. You know, at least you'll have tried it and we could reverse, we could reverse it. Worst case scenario. 
I didn't know that this was far more complicated um, than just, you know, we can reverse this. And I I think, again, this is where education comes in, Stephanie, is, um, you know, and I want to make sure this is clear to our audience, why education is so important. IBD and, you know, a lot of conditions that patients get, uh, autoimmune conditions especially, um, are so complex and can affect so many aspects of, uh, you know, your life uh, psychosocially, but also so many like organs um, that you really need to know what you're getting yourself into. And I don't think I knew what I was getting myself into with the J pouch. It was never drawn out for me. I had no idea what I was like, what was happening anatomically or how hard it would be to reverse. Even though I asked my surgeon at the time, would it be hard to reverse? He's like, no, 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 no. J pouch excision is one of the most challenging surgeries out there. And it can leave you with a rectal wound that doesn't close. Um, and as I'll get to later, like that's what happened to me um, is uh, my J pouch actually did fail in the sense that it was Crohn's. Um, it turned out to be Crohn's all along. Um, and I've actually been told, and I want to make sure, um, you know, our listeners know about this is, you know, back when I was going through this, they were saying, you know, the rate of J pouch failure is about four to 5%. Um, now I'm being quoted anywhere from 15 to 20%. Um, and mind you, my J pouch was excised in December of 2014. So I had it for six years. Um, and uh, there were times when it was connected, times when it was disconnected, where it was given a chance to heal. I developed what were called um, fistulae. So like fistulas are like tunnels. Um, so when you get so much inflammation, what can happen is your intestine can sort of break um, through um, and cause sort of these tunnels into other organs. That's what happened to me. And it was quite devastating because it went straight for like my lady parks for my vagina. And I was like 27, 28 and had just gotten married. Um, and it was, it was horrible. And, you know, I still remember that day when the doctor said to my husband and me that I had Crohn's, my husband even cried. He was just like, I thought we had, I thought this was a cure. That was the other thing. I was told the J pouch is a cure for ulcerative colitis. I I just don't think we should market it that way. Um, because even if it, turns off, you know, that sort of inflammatory process for IBD for some people, you know, with ulcerative colitis, there's patients who progress into Crohn's disease, or, you know, even if you remove the colon, I've even met patients who develop psoriatic arthritis or psoriasis or other autoimmune conditions for which they need biologics anyway later on. So these are all things that, you know, patients should be aware of, is that this is, J pouches are not a cure. They can significantly improve your quality of life um, when they do work well. Um, And so, you know, I don't want to sit here and be like anti J pouch because, you know, I've seen it work well for a lot of people. And I've seen a lot of people who really don't want an ostomy and love their J pouch. So this can go either way. And I just want to put that out there. Um, I think, I regretted for a long time even going down that J pouch route and it was a lot of introspection as to what happened. And that's when I realized how significant the cultural pressure was on me 
because I really didn't want to reverse based on what I was telling you with all the grief and separation anxiety that I was having. So yeah, it was, it was tough. Well, take me through the rest of your journey from there, because I do want to have you talk more about just the cultural differences and talk about your nonprofit and get into some of those things. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so how did, what happened from there? It turns out you found out it was Crohn's. Is that when it was, is that when the decision was made that this is not just ulcerative colitis, but we're looking at Crohn's or yeah. had they suspected it before? Did they? Th- no, they changed me to indeterminate. And then finally, I think they saw some backwash ileitis from the J pouch, some granulomas form in the, in, in the ileum past um, where the J pouch was. So um, they were very uh, concerned that this was Crohn's. And then I started to fistulize. So once those fistulae were there, they were like, this is hands down Crohn's. And, you know, we tried, uh, you know, cetons, multiple surgeries. Cetons are like these rubber bands that get tied into your fistulas um, uh, to help them drain, uh, drain out the infection. And then they do start you on biologics and stuff. Back then it was just Remicade and Humira, um, neither of which worked for me. Remicade worked for a week. Um, we only had those TNF, anti-TNF options. Um, Remicade, when they tried to reinduce me, I developed anaphylaxis, uh, so anaphylactic shock. So massive allergy. Humira never worked for me. So I went through the cycle of surgery after surgery, fistula after fistula, because um, there was no medications for me. Um, and I don't think they understood the etiology of pouchitis very well. Um, and they do much better now. And so it was decided, let's divert Tina, um, give her a stoma, leave the pouch in, let it heal. Didn't work. Kept fistulizing. I think I had a total of five RV fistulae before. And then later on, I had a sixth fistula, which I'll tell you about. But um, what happened is we decided to excise the J pouch December 2014. Um, which I was like, all right, I'm finally going to be done with this. You know, um, I think I tried Entevio when it had just come out in May 2014. It didn't work. I just kept developing more fish delay. Anyway, um, after that, I developed what was called a chronic rectal wound. Um, I just kept bleeding from my bottom. Um, what happens is they pull out the J pouch and rectum, and they kind of expect that rectal air, the bottom to close on its own. It wouldn't do that. Um, so three, four months later, got another opinion in Cleveland. They're like, Tina, this is surgical error. There's J pouch and rectum left behind. And I'm like, oh my God, like, how am I supposed to go back to my surgeon? Who's done like 15 of my surgeries is tell him he screwed up my surgery. <laughs> you know, like, how do you do that? You can't. Um, anyway, uh, I, they had offered me an option of using a flap from the back of my leg, from the back of my thigh to fill uh, this uh, rectal wound, clean out, you know, the bits and pieces of J pouch rectum that had created this big abscess inside me. It was a nine centimeter honeycomb like abscess that they were not able to break into and just pull out. So I would need another series of several surgeries to clean that all out. And they said they would take a flap from the back of my thigh and fill the wound. And I think I was just dissatisfied with that idea because he said it's a 74% success rate. And I was like, well, is my Crohn's going to attack that flap? Um, and he's like, I don't know. This is not a very commonly done surgery. And I was like, all right, let me get an opinion on Mayo. I'll come back to you. Go to Mayo. Um, they take me in for surgery right away. Uh, they 
cleaned out. They did an initial clean out of the pelvis with the J pouch rectum. And they said, we're leaving a drain in to help clean out this massive abscess. Left a drain in for three and a half weeks. I was literally injecting hydrogen peroxide into my pelvis three times a day. And I was suicidal. It was the most painful thing ever. Um, that was 2015, the summer of 2015. And, um, my mom called them and said, she is suicidal. I need to get her in right away. Like you need to take care of this. They told me at the time you have, um, a fistula coming out of that abscess that's in your pelvis headed for your spine and it could potentially paralyze you. We don't know. And they're like, we need to get you to clean this out with that hydrogen peroxide. And then we'll go in and keep cleaning out, out over and over again. Stephanie, it was, when I say medical trauma, it was unreal how much medical trauma I had from this instance. How were you dealing with that mental health wise? Because you already mentioned you were suicidal at that point, that it's one hurdle after another after another in your journey. And then to get the news that you've got this abscess that has the potential to paralyze you, it's hard to even comprehend that. How did you deal with that? I I thought I... I thought I was going to die, to be honest with you. I really did. Um, And I had already had a few near-death experiences with Crohn's to begin with, um, with the first surgery, um, even in between when they were doing the J-pouch excision and then now this. um, I just felt like, you know, why does somebody have to suffer like this? I, I just, I remember I was like, who suffers like this? What did I do to deserve this? Um, because this wasn't like a normal case of Crohn's either. Um, and it wasn't exactly killing me either. So I'm like, oh my God, like, what is this? As far as the mental health component, I was speaking to, um, the GI social worker, um, the entire time. And I was speaking to my psychiatrist the entire time and they had started me on antidepressants. That was a struggle too, because I remember, dissociating from the effectser that they put me on. It took a while to figure out which, um, you know, psychiatric drugs to even use. It was quite a process to be dealing with that while dealing with this. So it was not easy. Um, If I did not have continued therapy and support from my mom and husband, I don't know what, what would have happened to me. My mom was there for the entire stay at Mayo Clinic. I was there for six weeks, um, the summer of 2015. And yes, while she might have been against my initial surgeries, I think she had seen enough to know that, you know, surgeries do work, biologics do work, and that she was starting to come around with regards to a lot of that. And she was there for me and she was my rock through a lot of it. Um, We did get through this process. I was, the surgeon had to go through the side side of my bottom and create like a whole a big hole on the side of my bottom. It was like this big. And he attached a, he cleaned For out. For people who can't see your, your hand size, Sorry. that's about like six, seven inches. Yeah. I mean. Yeah. It was basically my entire like left butt cheek was like opened up. Um, sorry for the, the graphic, you know, image here, but um I actually still have photos of it. I made my husband take photos of it and he's like, you know, I didn't, I never thought it would close and I never wanted to take a photo of this for you. 
Um, they used a wound vac. So it was like a vacuum with like this um, negative air pressure trying to close it. Um, but what, why did they open that up? They opened it up to pull out whatever was left of that abscess and to pull out J pouch and rectum, whatever they could, um, you know, scar tissue, everything from there. Cause they couldn't go through my bottom. It was just so scarred from what they told me. Um, so it was this whole process. I remember them putting me in a saltwater pool to clean out that wound several times. They also, um, used to come in every other day, put me under sedation to clean out that wound. So it was, it was a whole process. And then they would reattach the wound back. And I was there for, like I said, several weeks. Um, and it was very traumatic, but I got to the other side and I think it was Labor Day weekend when I was finally being discharged. And, um, right after Labor Day weekend. And I was like, you know, I feel like I have a fistula again, an RV fistula again. I, I'm having those sim- same symptoms. It feels like a UTI, but I know it's not. Or it might be because of the, the you know, the stool leaking in, you know. Anyway, they did all the UTI testing. They did an MRI. They listened to me. And there was, there was a hole in my vaginal wall, even though my rectum had been removed. And the doctor there, um, they discharged me and the doctor there saw me right away, like the next day. And he's like, I am going to start you on Stellara. It's in clinical trials right now um, for Crohn's disease. It's been approved for psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis at a much lower dose. But I'm going to actually put you on the Crohn's dose and I will figure out how to get this done. Um, so it was, I was technically in a trial. I don't know how I got in with all the surgeries I had. I guess he was the PI on it. But, um, so I joined, uh, the Stellara trial in, uh, September, 2015. I think the drug was approved a year, year and a half later, um, for Crohn's disease with a loading dose on it. So I actually started it without a loading dose and it took several months to kick in. But it was in 2016 was the first time I experienced remission in 10 years. Wow. So, yeah. And after all of that, you learn the power of medicine and surgery. I mean, sometimes I look back on that journey and I'm just like, Tina, would it have been any different if you took the Remicade earlier? You just don't know because you also lose response to these drugs too, right? And it could end up in surgery too. But that's why I'm so passionate, Stephanie, about educating other patients not to delay their care. Um, you know, there are already systemic delays um, that we know about because of, uh, because of you know, unconscious bias and because the implicit bias that, you know, may not be addressed uh, adequately by providers. But there's also this component of making sure that patients feel culturally safe and understood um, and feel like they can trust their doctor and that their do- doctor has their back and understands where they're coming from and why they're making the decisions that they're making and speaking to them in an appropriate manner to make sure that they do, um, you know, consider medication and surgery in a timely fashion. So are you still on the Stellara today? Is that still giving you... Yeah, I spent two hours on the phone trying to get this approved under a new insurance policy today. (laughs) Did they approve it? (laughs) It's coming on Tuesday. (laughs) Good, good. 
are you in remission now or do you still have some flare-ups or knock on wood you're doing well? I did have a flare-up um I think in 2016-17 it was a little shaky um at times in 2019 I had a flare-up and they had to uh re- well, they technically, I mean, I was going to say the word reinduce me on Stellara, but I'd never been induced in the first place. I never received an induction loading dose. So this was your first loading dose. <laughs> yeah, I got a loading dose of Stellara um, four years after starting it. It was like a reboot. And then they moved to every four weeks instead of every eight weeks. And that was actually a study too, um, because I think they realized that people might start losing response to the Stellara at like the, with, with the eight week mark, maybe they need to push them up to four or six weeks. So the study was actually, excuse me, the study was actually um, like this reboot, this reinduction loading dose, and then slamming down the inflammation and moving to every four weeks. Um, so that's what we did. And now I take it every six weeks, um, since I did okay on the four weeks. So I think I'm in remission. Um, I had an MR in, um, May now it's August and in May it looked like everything was okay. That's amazing. Yeah. So let's keep it that way. (laughs) Yes. Fingers crossed for sure. So let's talk about the advocacy. When did you, your whole journey has kind of been a struggle of learning to advocate for yourself. What finally, what were some of the things that finally gave you the courage to speak up for yourself? And then when did you take that and turn it into sharing your story and begin more of a a public advocacy and speaking for speaking up to help advocate for all chronic patients? You know, thanks, Stephanie. You know, that's a really important question because that was also a process and a journey in and of itself. Um, to learn to advocate for myself. I think because there were so many times when I wasn't sure what was happening to me anatomically with surgery, et cetera. As my disease got more and more complicated, started to fistulize, the J pouch was having issues. I started reading a lot of research papers during this time because I was like, all right, I clearly need to understand this if I'm going to talk to my doctors in a way that, you know, can get me the care that I need. And then I started being asked, (laughs) this was funny, um, are you a doctor yourself? (laughs) This was like come 2012, 2013, 2014. Are you a doctor yourself? Like, no, (laughs) I'm just trying to figure out what's wrong with me and how do we treat this and get this, you know, under control because I'm sick of living my life like in this like, in this like no man's land where that's what it was. It was like this no man's land between like living a life and being dead. Like that's what I felt like my life was just somewhere in the middle of being alive and being dead. And that's no way to live. It's just like, like a zombie, like floating around. And I wanted to get my life back. And that's why I started to read all these research papers. Forget about, you know, like, health websites and things like that. I went straight for PubMed. Like I didn't, I had no medical background. I was a finance Wall Street person and I I did a Spanish major too. And so I, there was was no medical background here whatsoever. So that's when I think I got my exposure to what research looked like in the space and the IBD research space and started pushing back, asking a lot of questions from the doctors. And that's when I would get a lot of questions like, are you, do you have a medical background? Are you a doctor? Are you a nurse? 
Um, and it was actually not the case. And we usually used to laugh about it, even at the Cleveland Clinic, Mayo Clinic, it was asked of me. Um, but I think, um, and in terms of my actual advocacy, I, I think when I came into remission, I decided that um, I wanted to volunteer and get more involved with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation. Before that, I had no even mental bandwidth to consider doing anything because I was so consumed by my own recovery from a bazillion surgeries. And, and trying like, to stay alive. Exactly, exactly. Um, so for fighting for my life, um, I do remember joining Twitter in 2014 and seeing Med Twitter for the first time and how prolific it was. And it is still very prolific nine years later, um, where there were doctors and patients having conversations about the disease and about some of the research. And I was just like, hey, I can do that. Is that what patient advocacy is? I can (laughs) jump in on the conversation. (laughs) Yeah, because I was just like, I have opinions on this based on what I've been through. And so I remember talking to my husband about this and he was like, oh no, Tina, you're not coming out with your story. The social media is just like, he's like, and you know, what you've been through is a lot to begin with. And then on top of that, how much have we dealt with, with, her families, getting married. There was a, it was so much drama for us to even get married. I remember there's so much pushback from, you know, his extended family. Um, in, in our community and in a lot of communities, people with disabilities don't usually get married. It, it questions your ability to be a good partner. Um, and which sounds so ableist, but it's unfortunately, you know, what the, the mindset that goes back generations. The reality is people can have um, interabled marriages, can have um, very successful marriages just because you can't cook a meal because you're sick does not mean that you can't be a good wife and can't be there for your husband. So I, um, I think that was a real challenge for him to accept. And, you know, me coming out, could have meant social suicide. And it did mean social suicide for us um, in a lot of ways. And it took a few years for us to accept that that would be the case and that, you know, it might be inevitable. Has it started to turn around after all these years? Because you've been, it has, you're shaking your head, yes. (laughs) Yeah, it has turned around. I came out with my story publicly in 2018. So it's been about five years And it was actually the foundation that released my story um, because they wanted to honor me with Honored Hero at their Take Steps walk in New York City. Um, So that was a big step to accept that award and give a speech and have them release my story on social media. But I realized after that, that there was no turning around because there's a lot of publications that started reaching out after that, you know, like Everyday Health, Thrive Global, um, IBD News Today. There was a lot of different publications that started getting in touch with me saying, we want to talk to you. We want to hear more about your story and stuff. So I realized that even though I wanted to go back under the covers, I couldn't. Um, It was initially, Stephanie, as I was saying, social suicide. A lot of people came to my family and me and said, how can you disgrace yourself and your family by talking about this? People are, you know, a lot of people unfollowed me during that time and it's fine. It's life goes on. But I do feel like some people came around and also felt like, oh, wow, this is really important work that you're doing. And some people were like, I just don't want anything to do with it. 
So sometimes, you know, when I do see family, it can be tough. Um, they don't want to even talk about any of this, and which is fine. Um, I just kind of go about my life, you know, as uh, an otherwise a normal human being, <laughs> or however you want to put it. Um, so yeah, it has gotten better. I think I've just accepted it. And some people have just accepted it. Others haven't. And you just move on. So going through these cultural challenges with friends and family, is that part of what prompted you to start the nonprofit, the South Asian IBD Alliance? Yeah, so so, exactly. Um, South Asian IBD Alliance, we call it SAIA for short, um, S-A-I-A. So um, that's exactly what I think um, was the impetus behind it. I think Own Your Crohn's as a blog um, serves its purpose for a good patient education. But I realized very quickly um, when I started my blog that I was getting a lot of messages from, from people of color, of various communities, um, and not just the South Asian community, but the Middle Eastern community, the Far East Asian community, uh, the Hispanic Latino community, even, uh, you know, the African and Caribbean Jamaican communities, you know, I, I got messages from all over the world and within this country too. And it was just really overwhelming. And I think it was also like, um, very meaningful in a lot of ways, because I realized I had struck a chord that this wasn't just about IBD, that there were other layers of challenges that people were facing. And I realized very quickly that it wasn't just my experience, that it is a collective, a more collective experience um, to be facing a, a, a whole other level of stigma that involves culture, that involves um, religious beliefs, um, that involves just traditions and different traditional practices in communities around the world. Um, so that's what I came upon. And I didn't feel comfortable speaking for everyone. Everyone has different stigmas, has different, have different uh, challenges and cultural religious beliefs. Like I, I, even, even with the South Asian IBD Alliance, like, uh, yes, it might sound niche or whatever, but at least I know that we are addressing the concerns of a community that I I'm from, you know what I mean? And that the other patient advocates who are involved on SAYA um, are from, even though we speak different languages, even though some of us are different religions. Uh, I'm Hindu, they're Sikh, Muslim, uh, you know, whatever you might be, we have similar stigmas that we're facing. um, And we're from a region that um, we can collectively say that we have, um, you know, similar experiences. Um, So I didn't really feel comfortable speaking for some of the other communities. And I do encourage other communities to please advocate for yourself um, and make it known what it is that you're going through. There's a lot of people out there who need help. The Hispanic community, even though I speak Spanish um, well, um, I was just at, for instance, the UOA conference where I met a a few Hispanic um, folks with ostomies as well. And they they need so much support, and I feel for them. And and there there needs to be so much more in terms of Spanish speaking support and support groups, etc. But I just feel like um, there's only so much that each community can take on, and that you know, for instance, um, like nonprofits can take on. So you know, for us, we came together. As patient advocates, which is called the IBD Desis patient advocacy arm, uh, IBD Desis means literally IBD 
plus Desi, which means South Asian. So we came together as patient advocates. Then, um, you know, some doctors wanted to join hands with us. Um, and we formed South Asian IBD Alliance as a patient and clinician collaborative. So that's why it formed, because doctors could relate to what I was talking about. They realized it was a problem in our community um, and that it was growing really rapidly, this disease in our community. Um, South Asians have some of the potentially some of the highest burden of IBD around the world right now. Um, and this is just emerging data across the world. Um, we're seeing it out of Canada. We're seeing it out of Europe, out of India, out of Pakistan, out of Malaysia and Singapore even, um, and not just the United States. So that's why we felt that there was a real need to address um, culturally competent, culturally appropriate care, um, because if other patients were going through similar things to what I was going through, that means a lot of delays to care. That means worsened outcomes. And unfortunately, for many people, that can mean death, too, from a chronic illness that, you know, people are now surviving, not dying from. So what are some of the activities that the organization does and how can people become a part of it? What can they expect? Are there chat rooms or groups, yeah, like yeah. ways to meet up? Talk a little bit about that side of it, the activities. Uh, absolutely. Um, so we have three arms um, and we're in um, the process of developing a fourth. Um, we have a patient outreach and advocacy arm that focuses on um, like uh, right now, we're doing a lot of virtual patient education, whether that's through Facebook Lives or YouTube. Um, we do a lot of patient education via our um, uh, Facebook support group, which is called the IBD Desi's Facebook community. Um, and so, you know, I just want to be very clear that even though this is a South Asian community, I welcome everyone to join. It's really, you know, not an issue. I, I want to make sure that education is getting out. Um, so we do have that. Um, we also have um, virtual support groups that we encourage everyone to join. Those are like, like you know, uh, Zoom rooms that you can join um, and sort of chat through and uh, introduce yourself to different people around the world. Um, and then, um, and receive support, of course. Um, and then we have a professional development arm um, that's doing a lot of professional education on, um, on IBD. The, the issue is there's a lot of patients being diagnosed or not being diagnosed because doctors may not be recognizing that this is exploding um, in our community. So um, we have some activities on Twitter. Uh, one's IBD Journal Club, um, where fellows educate each other on the latest research um, for IBD. And then um, we have held a couple of events at Digestive Disease Week this past year in Chicago in person. One was actually a conversation between a doctor and a patient. Um, and one was a quote unquote bad conversation, like not very culturally appropriate. Um, and one was an example of a good conversation. So we did a bad and a good, um, uh, one followed by the other. Um, and then we also had a, a, a pretty big launch event for SIA at DDW, um, where we were actually educating um, professionals on what it is we're doing, uh, why we're doing this, how we aim to, to do this over time. Um, we also, uh, I think Dr. Nandi um, at, from Pan Medicine also spoke at um, OPI, which, uh, which was held in Philadelphia in July this year, in July of 2023, 
Um, and that's the, I always forget what it stands for. American Association of Physicians of Indian Origin. Yeah, I think that's it. Um, so educating Indian physicians, which there's a lot of physicians who are Indian in the United States, on the fact that IBD is exploding in our community. And hey, you need to w- watch out for this and look out for it. So that went super well. Um, and we have a bunch of other events coming up that are a little bit of a surprise, so I won't give that away. Um, and then we do also have a third arm, uh, research arm. So um, that that might be some of the publications you've been seeing coming out, Stephanie. Um, we are uh, we have written a lot of commentaries on what's going on, um, what the phenomenon is, and that we're trying to understand what is leading to this. And we actually do have some studies um, related to mental health, diet, um, uh, and just this disease and the extensiveness of this disease in our community. Um, coming out over the next couple of years. So we are working on research as well. Um, We are forming a fourth committee on multidisciplinary care um, as we speak. Um, So I think that's going to focus more on the various different, you know, holistic aspects of this disease, looking at diet, mental health, uh, and so many other aspects, pelvic floor therapy, all these kinds of things that patients really need to address as well. What an incredible organization and the work that it is doing. And you've co-founded it with, I think, another a physician. Is that correct? Yeah. To you and another co-founder. Yeah, there's actually so there I think a few of us have co-founded it. Um, I, I kind of brought the there's two patient advocates who've co-founded it with me. Mother Abala Subramaniam in India, um, Sharon Kayla in the UK. Um, both have really helped me set up this organization Dr. Neil Nandi at Penn Medicine, huge shout out to him for helping to advance SIA. Dr. Deepak Parakal, too, at Washington University. Um, uh, there's Dr. Sabina Ali, Dr. Thalsif Ali, uh, Neha Shah. Um, and then we have a bunch of physicians um, across the world, too. Dr. Shaji Sebastian in the UK, um, who's on our board. Dr. Vishal Sharma in India, Dr. Sumit Bhartia in India, and Dr. Vishal, uh, I said Dr. Vishal Sharma, Dr. Kiran Pethi in India as well. So we have a number of physicians around the world um, uh, who are involved, who've helped to sort of found SIA and help to bring it to life. And we have a number of patients involved as well. That's absolutely wonderful. So we've touched on a lot, a lot of advocacy, your, your journey. What is it that we have not talked about today that you would like to share with the people who are listening and either patients, fellow patients or family members? What is it that you would like to pass on that we haven't talked about? No, that's a great question, Stephanie. I think what I would like to pass on um, to the community is always ask questions. I know um, I always struggled with this. I'm asking too many questions of my doctor um, and they're getting sick of me and this appointment is going over time. I I know how it feels um, to be in that situation where you're just like, I just need to get all these questions answered. I would say ask them anyway. And if you can't ask them of your doctor or there's not enough time, ask the nurse practitioner, ask the physician assistant, um, leave uh, uh, my chart messages if you need to. Um, if you didn't get all your questions answered, but make sure you get the education you need. If you don't um, feel comfortable asking all these questions of your doctor or um, PA or NP, remember that some of the centers in the United States also have 
um, psychologists, psychiatrists involved. They even have dietitians involved. Ask them the questions. Sometimes they will liaise with your doctor to get your questions answered. Um, you can ask your surgeon those questions. Also, come and join um, Facebook support groups. I know that there is widespread misinformation sometimes, but go to the groups where you know you're going to get solid, credible information. Follow um, people like Stephanie, people like myself, um, other patient advocates, Natalie Hayden, for instance, or major nonprofits like the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, UOAA, which is the United Ostomy Associations of America. Follow communities like SIAS, South Asian IBD Alliance, or IBD Desis. Follow us, um, and you'll get a lot of the education. You'll find a lot of the education on some of these credible websites. Even if you cannot understand the, the medical research that's out there, um, there are um, good nonprofits with a lot of uh, resources out there that might be um, more comprehensible to you and your family. And I just say, you know, when you join some of these support groups, even so, some are in person, some are, are on Zoom, some are on Facebook. I think there's, um, especially in some of these credible groups, you can get a lot of good information about the disease. You can also find the support that you need if you're starting a brand new drug and you're really scared or if you're undergoing surgery really scared, you can find the support of someone who's been through it. I think um, don't underestimate the power of social media. I hated social media before um, my advocacy work. And then I realized that there's a lot of good that can be done. So um, I would just say, you know, learn as much as you can about your disease so that you can advocate for yourself so that you can overcome some of the anxiety around this disease because you know as much as you can about it. That is great advice. Thank you so much. So if people want to follow you, keep up with your journey, all the work that you're doing, learn more about Saya, where can they find you online? Sure. Um, so uh, you can follow me at Own Your Crohn's um, on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, I'm on LinkedIn as Tina Swani Om Prakash. Um, my blog website is ownyourcrohn's.com. As far as Saya goes on um, IBD Desis as our patient advocacy arm, um, our website is southasianibd.org. Um, and on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, um, LinkedIn, even TikTok, I think, we're uh, at South Asian IBD and at IBD Desis. That's I-B-D-E-S-I-S. Um, yeah. Perfect. I will put all those links in the show notes. I may have to ask <laughs> for send, your help to make yeah, sure I, I get them all. Don't worry, I can send it to you. <laughs> thank you so much. This has been an absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for sharing your journey. You are, as I said in the beginning, you are truly an inspiration to so many people. Your journey has had so many ups and downs. And to see you thriving and doing so well, it is such an amazing sight, just phenomenal. So thank you for coming on today and sharing your story. Thanks so much, Stephanie, for having me. It's, it's an honor. Thank you for listening. If you love these interviews and want to support the podcast, visit my website at Crohn'sFitnessFood.com where you can browse my featured products page to shop the companies I love and support. Make a donation using the Buy Me a Coffee link to send a little love or grab a copy of my book and IBD story, Crohn's Fitness Food and My Rocky Road to Health. If you have an IBD story that you want to share, send me an email at story at Crohn'sFitnessFood.com. And always remember, be strong, be grateful, and keep going.